Welcome to another episode of Conversations. This is Adam Rosh, and I want to thank you for joining me. To kick off the first episode, I thought I'd start with a conversation I had with Dr. Peter Rosen back in 2016. As some of you may know, Dr. Rosen passed away last year, 2019, at the age of 84. And his professional life and legacy are truly defined by really decades-long campaign to legitimize emergency medicine as a discipline and a field of study and a vital academic specialty. And in these efforts, he was largely successful. Since the last 20 years of my life have been defined by emergency medicine, I thought it would be a nice tribute to kick off the Conversations podcast with Dr. Rosen. So this episode was so much more than hearing how Dr. Rosen's work was integral in helping to develop the specialty of emergency medicine. We get to see a very human side of Dr. Rosen. And again, just so you are aware, the episode will start with the original introduction to the conversation, which was recorded on May 2nd, 2016. I think you're going to enjoy this. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Peter Rosen. I hope everyone is doing great and having a great day. Now, today's episode is very special to me. And let me tell you, you're in for a real treat. We're going to be talking with Dr. Peter Rosen. Yes, the Peter Rosen. Now, I think most of you who are emergency physicians know who Peter Rosen is. I mean, let's face it. Back in 2004, when I was a resident, I carried around his three-volume textbook set everywhere I went. It was my way to exercise and learn at the same time. Just kidding. But I do appreciate that Dr. Rosen decided to merge his textbook into a two-volume set recently. Thank you, Dr. Rosen. For those of you who do not know Dr. Rosen, I'm going to read his bio from the UC San Diego Department of Emergency Medicine website. Here it goes. Dr. Peter Rosen was originally trained as a general surgeon and practiced surgery in the Army and in Wyoming until 1971, when he became the first full-time director of emergency medicine at the University of Chicago. While there, he started a residency in emergency medicine. He then moved to Denver, Colorado, where he was chief until 1989, when he moved to UC San Diego. Dr. Rosen currently divides his year between Boston, where he teaches at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and Tucson, where he teaches at the University of Arizona, and San Diego, where he teaches at UCSD. His interest in emergency medicine has been in writing and editing, and is still on the editorial board of the Journal of Emergency Medicine, which he founded in 1983, and is co-editor of the Italian Journal of Internal and Emergency Medicine. Dr. Rosen's major interests in emergency medicine have been in trauma, airway management, and resident education. He has edited and written a number of books and papers. Other interests outside of medicine have been in tennis, where he is determined to learn how to hit a forehand, sailing, and reading. So now, I've listened to many other interviews with Peter Rosen and can honestly say this is one you do not want to miss. We go pretty deep and talk about everything from Dr. Rosen's morning rituals 
his take on physician burnout, how he maintains a healthy marriage, some parenting advice, who he thinks is the most successful person he knows, what books have shaped him personally and professionally, how two patients had such an impact on his career that he'll never forget them, some of his regrets, when are you too old to be practicing emergency medicine, his views on podcasts, open access journals, differentiating happiness versus fulfillment, and the example of happiness he uses is a feeling of having a good bowel movement. Dr. Rosen ends with what he thinks he'll never get to do in life and what he wants to be remembered for, and much, much more. This is Dr. Peter Rosen like you've never heard him before. So whether you are a medical student, resident, junior or senior level attending, physician assistant, nurse, or someone not even in the health professions, there is something for everyone in this episode. And let me say one more thing. Give this podcast a few minutes to get heated up. It takes us a little while, really mostly me, to get to the more intimate parts of the conversation. That's not saying that the beginning is not interesting. It's just that the deeper material begins in the middle of the episode. So without further ado, let me introduce to you Dr. Peter Rosen. Welcome to the Roshcast, Dr. Rosen. How are you? All right. Nice to see you. Super. So it's really great to be talking to you again. And I was thinking this morning, this is the third time that we've actually spoken. The first time was back in 2003 when I was interviewing for a residency position in emergency medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess. The second time was in 2011, I believe. Uh, you were at the Legends of Emergency Medicine Conference at Detroit Receiving Hospital and gave a talk titled Survival Attitudes in Emergency Medicine, which had the room rolling in laughter and really they were in awe. They were so impressed with that talk. And now this is the third time. Uh, so uh, let's dive right in. And I want to get started with my first question. And it has to do with ideals. So I'm approaching 10 years since I completed residency training at Bellevue Hospital. And I really started noticing that I'm grappling daily with maintaining the same ideals I had when I started residency. Now I'm more familiar with the hidden agendas and it feels like I'm not allowed to do what I set out to do in emergency medicine, which was care for the patient. So how does an emergency physician or really any healthcare provider maintain these ideals that first made us want to be emergency physicians? There's no job that doesn't have frustrations. I believe that the second law of thermodynamics applies to everything in life. And that says in any closed system, without an ever increasing infusion of energy, the system assumes maximum chaos. And there's no law that says that the infusion of energy has to be spent on anything useful. So in order to do the things in medicine that you set out to do that are fulfilling and that are the purpose of being there, you have to spend a lot of energy fighting off the things that aren't any fun to do and that seemingly increase every year. And I think what this means is that you probably don't get an infinite run in any one place. I figure 10 years is the usual maximum. And then you have to move to another closed system. 
and start all over again. You often talk about losing ideals as an emergency physician as you go through your career. And so what I'm wondering is, how do you struggle with, how do you manage maintaining your ideals throughout a long career in emergency medicine? When I first started in emergency medicine, I didn't know it was a separate field. And I was simply expecting to continue being a surgeon with emergency medicine being my administrative responsibility. But because of the animosity of the Department of Surgery, specifically the chair, I ended up being moved to the dean's office. And then there was a gradual evolution of the notion that emergency medicine was a separate specialty. I probably had to learn it by doing it. And I think that the ideals were that we would be able to train people to take care of emergency patients so that they would want to be there and would do a good job by being there. And I think that the fights were mostly because once we demonstrated an interest, and I use we not as the royal we, but Mm -hmm. those of us who were doing emergency medicine, once we developed an interest in emergency medicine, then all of a sudden everybody wanted it back. It was their turf and we were stealing their baby and their positions and their their monies and they wanted to get rid of us. But it was quite clear that after decades of neglect that it had to be done differently. And I think that my first recognition of the field as a separate specialty was that there was a different way of thinking about patients and a different set of responsibility towards patients. And that had to be learned. And because it had to be learned, then it was a body of knowledge that could be taught. So my second goal, which kept me, I think, fulfilled in emergency medicine, was the recognition that without a literature, the field it wasn't a field. Right. And it was about at that time, after I had moved to Denver in 1977, I started work on the textbook in 1978. And then I started the Journal of Emergency Medicine in 1983, the year the first edition of the textbook came out. And of course, we started writing papers and I also felt that our goal shouldn't be to publish in the New England Journal, which didn't want to publish anything related to emergency medicine anyway, but should be published somewhere that emergency physicians read because we were writing not for internists, but for emergency physicians. I don't think that everybody recognized emergency medicine was a separate specialty. And many of our enemies said there was nothing unique about emergency medicine, which actually was the source of some of my discontent. And I wrote a paper called The Biology of Emergency Medicine, probably the best paper I ever wrote, because the dean at the University of Chicago told me that when he had his heart attack, he wanted a cardiologist to take care of him, not an emergency physician. And I asked him how he knew he was having a heart attack. And he looked puzzled. 
And I said, we can't have 47 different specialists sitting there waiting for a patient who knows what's wrong with himself to come in and ask for one of them. Someone has to screen the field, which means deciding who's the sickest, who has what problem that needs intervention. And also, it's a different process. Our responsibility is not necessarily a diagnosis so much as a recognition that we have an unstable patient who needs to be resuscitated and stabilized. Well, he didn't understand, but that's okay, because I think those of us who practice emergency medicine did. From that article, The Biology of Emergency Medicine, and I'm going to, I'll post the link to that article. One of my favorite quotes from that article came from you, and you said, and this is back in 1979, the emergency physician must be as good as the cardiologist in running an arrest. However, after several recent experiences watching cardiologists in charge of an arrest, I say they must become as good as the emergency physician. So that's something I think that rings very true today. What has happened in emergency medicine that you would have never predicted happening 20, 30 years ago that we now are faced with today? Well, I don't believe I foresaw the development of the introduction of ancillary personnel practicing emergency medicine. I think our biggest threat to the field is the introduction of PAs and nurse practitioners, not because I have anything against them, but because of the greed of the emergency physician They've been asked to replace emergency physicians so that one could charge an emergency physician fee for their work, but pay them a PA or nurse practitioner salary, which I think is not only immoral, but probably illegal. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's right. If a PA can practice emergency medicine, then why did we bother going to medical school, taking residencies and working as hard as we work to describe and develop the field. I have no problem with using physician extenders for minor problems, but I don't think it should be the physician extender that defines the minor problem. I think it should be a physician. And I am very worried that once the government realizes that they can get away with putting a PA in place of a physician, then they will stop supporting physicians to do the job that needs to be done. Claiming that it's an equal success and that they're practicing safe and good emergency medicine, but they're not. So the PA and nurse practitioner specialties are growing faster today than ever before. Well, they are. And I think that they original motivation for them was in institutions like large county hospitals where they didn't have the money to support the number of physicians that they needed for their workloads. And so they had to do something. And as I said, I'm not opposed to the use of those personnel if it's done correctly. What I'm opposed to is having them work side by side with the emergency physician. And as I've seen in some community emergency departments, 
the PA is doing all the work while the emergency physician sits in the back room and plays solitaire on the computer. <laughs> I think that there are cases that they should not see primarily. And I think that there needs to be a direct communication between the PA and the physician on duty because you can't expect someone to recognize problems that they weren't trained to recognize. Right. I'll give you an example. I saw a case where a uh, guy was hammering something on his recreational vehicle and felt something fly into his eye. And he went into an emergency department where he was seen by a PA who didn't know about the possibility of foreign body and uh, thought the guy had a minor corneal abrasion treated him as such and sent him out missing the foreign body in the eye that ended up causing an intraocular abscess and the loss of vision in, in that eye. I think most emergency physicians would have immediately obtained uh, either an ultrasound or an x-ray of the eye looking for the foreign body. So I think that you can't ask people to do what they're not educated to do. And uh, if we don't need the education of residency training in medical school, then I've wasted my entire life. Sure. What is the greatest mistake we're making in emergency medicine? Would you say it's physician extenders or some other? Well, I think that's the greatest threat to emergency medicine. Mm -hmm. But I think the biggest mistake is too much fragmentation into super-specialized emergency departments. First it was pediatrics, now it's geriatrics, then it was trauma. And we forget that somebody has to be capable of doing broad-based emergency medicine. I think a lot of our present graduates are headed towards critical care, and that's good, but they are finding that it's virtually impossible to combine critical care and emergency medicine. And the more critical care they do, the less emergency medicine they want to do or they're capable of doing. So I think we need to preserve the specialty of emergency medicine. So it's interesting, right? So you trained as a general surgeon. Uh, I believe your father was a general internist. He was a GP surgeon. That's right. And so, you know, both of those specialties, internal medicine, general surgery, they, they went the way of becoming highly specialized, right? Now we struggle with finding generalists. And given that emergency medicine is such, you know, well, it's not so young anymore, but it's kind of, do you see it following that same pathway as what you just described, right? We, we trained, we initiated, we began as this general field, and now we're seeing this subspecialization. Yeah, I think it's inevitable, but I think we have to guard against it being the complete definition of emergency medicine, the way it's become in surgery. When I did surgery, uh, general surgeons did a lot of different kinds of surgery. We did vascular, we did chest, we did GYN, we did some orthopedics. Today, the general surgeon hasn't got very many surgical problems left to do. They've all been taken off by the subspecialists. But I, I think that uh, 
there may be a pendulum swing back from that in the future, mm-hmm. simply because economically there isn't enough to support a surgeon if he's only going to do uh, appies and gallbladders and hernias. And I think there's not enough uh, economically to support a trauma surgeon when so few cases are actually operated on. So they end up becoming general surgeons again. It's interesting that the field has evolved in a different way in Europe where they have a trauma surgeon who is part orthopedist and part general surgeon. And they do all the acute fracture work as well as the remaining trauma work. And that's worked very well in Austria and in Germany where they have trauma hospitals. But I don't see that happening in this country because it didn't go that way, although uh, it was an interesting idea. Right. So on the flip side, what do you think are some of the greatest growth areas in emergency medicine? Well, we're taking over more and more of the immediate care of the patient. And I won't say acute care, but just the immediate care. I never thought I'd see the day when the emergency department did post-op care for same-day surgery. But that's what's happening because the surgeon isn't available. And obviously, the emergency department is still the only place you can get into the medical delivery system in any kind of expeditious fashion. Right. I had a personal experience with this uh, A couple of years ago, I had a bout of pneumonia, and I called my internist, who's a very good internist and who I uh, uh, respected a great deal, and basically wanted some antibiotics and uh, some advice. And I got a message saying that my call was important and would be returned within 48 hours. (laughs) I turned to my son, the one who didn't think I was a very good diagnostician, and said, the hell with it, we're going to the emergency department. <laughs> and sure enough, uh, an hour later, I was admitted to the hospital. So I, I think that that's true of everybody, no matter what they're funding, no matter what kind of primary care physician you have, you can't get into the system in, in any fashion that's quick other than by going to the emergency department. And I don't see that changing. So that means we do all of the immediate care. We make the decisions about who needs to or doesn't need to come in. That's another interesting change. When I first started working in emergency medicine, I spent the bulk of my time trying to convince internists that patients needed to be admitted. And now I spend the bulk of my time trying to convince internists that their patients don't need to be admitted because it's late in the afternoon and they just bang them down to the emergency department to be admitted to the hospitals because they want to go home. But those patients can be managed as outpatients. So we still serve as gatekeepers. We still are the safety net for the medical delivery system. And we still have an important task of recognizing those problems that need acute stabilization and then worrying about diagnosis thereafter. That's led to one of the other acute problems in emergency medicine. I was telling the residents uh, here in Tucson that the most difficult problem in emergency medicine today is the acute ischemic coronary syndrome. 
ST elevation is easy. It's recognizable when it goes to the cath lab. Acute ischemic coronary syndrome is easy if the patient's having persistent pain or dysrhythmia. But if the patient's pain has stopped, then it's difficult because we don't have the evidence to know what to do for that patient and how fast to do it. And it's institutional dependent. In Boston, we put those patients in the OBS unit, do a stress test the next morning, and then have them followed by cardiology. But in many places around the country, they're sent home to follow up with cardiology and who knows how long it takes them to get an appointment and who knows how long it takes them to get a provocative test or how safe it is to wait for one. So I think that we're going to end up answering those questions in emergency medicine uh, the way we've done in Boston. We're going to take it over and say, it's not safe to wait. We're going to do it before we send the patient home. And the reason we do that is twofold. One, it's safer. And two, it is psychologically better for the patient. They don't want to come in and be told, you have a very serious disease, go home. The cardiologist will take care of it at some unknown time. They want to know what to do for that very serious disease and what's going to happen next. And I think that's up to us to help provide that information. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self or your 30-year-old self when you were just starting off in medicine? Well, I wouldn't go into general surgery. I would go into emergency medicine. And the reason is the emergency physician is what I dreamed a physician was, someone who knew what to do when somebody had an acute need for a doctor. And I think that I still believe that that's a good thing to do in medicine. I don't think everybody has to do it, but I think if your personality leads you towards wanting to answer that kind of question, then emergency medicine is the place to do it. I certainly believe in residency training, and I still dream that someday in our country, no patient will go into an emergency department and be cared for by anybody other than a trained emergency physician. I don't think that will happen in my lifetime, but I think we're closer to it than we were when I started in the field. And I still think it's a good a goal to strive for. So I noted your certification expires in 2018. Are you planning to recertify? No, because I don't practice right. clinically anymore. Yeah. It's funny. I just got back from Victoria, British Columbia, where I gave a little talk on aging in <laughs> emergency medicine. Right. And I think the the critical question about aging is, when do you let go? When do you stop practicing? And there's no easy answer to that question. I think the safest answer is to have a mandatory retirement age and then break the rule when you have someone who doesn't need to retire at that age. But I also believe that there comes a time when you have to be intellectually honest and say, I can't do it anymore. And that time came for me several years ago. I've had some cardiac disease. I get unpredictable angina. 
And I have this theory that the doctor shouldn't be sicker than the patient. It's a good one. I don't like getting angina when I'm seeing a patient. I don't think it's fair to the patient. So I think there comes a time when even though it's still fun to practice and I still dream about it, I have to admit that I was no longer comfortable in practicing. I didn't feel safe. And it's not because I didn't know emergency medicine. It's not because I didn't have experience in doing it. It's because physically I couldn't do it anymore. And I think it was uh, the only honest thing to do. So most things in emergency medicine have gotten easier for me, recognizing disease patterns, dealing with patients, teaching. One thing that I find that's gotten more difficult, though, is death telling, right, is um, having that conversation with the family. What experiences, what advice, anything you have over the years that you've been able to grapple with that in a better way? Well, I actually did have a, a focused interest in that. And in the first edition of my textbook, I co-authored the chapter on death and dying and, and grief counseling. I think you have to learn how to do it just as you learn how to do other things in emergency medicine. It's uh, uncomfortable because for the emergency physician, death is our failure. We believe that we can prevent untimely death, but of course, that's a relative truth. And so we have to learn how to take care of the survivors. Could give an hour lecture on it, but let me just quickly say, the first step is the recognition that acute grief is sort of like being kicked in the testicles. (laughs) It stops your whole world, and all you can focus on is your loss. And you have to allow people to get through that, what I call grief spike. And then you have to help them turn their grief from a potential disease into a natural process. Some people want to eat, some people don't want to eat. I think the practice of sedating everybody who has an acute grief is uh, not only a bad practice, but it's silly. You need to face the issue, not hide from it. And uh, one of the tips that I have found that works the best is to remind people that there's nothing wrong with remembering the good relationships that they had and forgetting about the fights. And one of the reasons for the grief spike is that we all feel guilty about the things we never got around to doing with the dead person. And I think that we should remember that death robs us of a future, but not of a past. And there's nothing wrong with sitting in our living room and thinking about conversations that we've had. I still have mental conversations with friends that I've lost Mm. because I can hear their voices in my head. And that's helped me with my own grief. And I think it helps other people with theirs. Thank you. So, When is the last time you changed your mind on an important issue? And what was the issue? Well, I change my practice all the time when I find new evidence upon which to change it. I used to think that all pneumonia had to be admitted. And uh, and then I discovered that, in fact, 
unless the patient is unstable, there is no reason not to care for them at home. I suspect there's a lot of diseases which we were very rigid about approaching. PE may be one. The Canadians have showed us that PEs don't all need to be admitted, and uh, it's probably safe to manage DVT and PE patients who are stable at home. So I, I think that there are many areas uh, such as that upon which I've changed my mind, and I'm willing to change my mind if you could show me a, a safe alternative to what we were doing as a standard. What I am unwilling to do is to change my mind when the change is for change's sake and they're asking me to change to something that doesn't make any sense, like not operating on appendicitis. Appendicitis is not an infection. It's an obstructive disease. And the reason that you can get away with not operating on it some of the time is because the untreated mortality of appendicitis is only 30% before they were ever doing surgery on it. Right. Well, if seven out of 10 patients relieve their own obstruction and get better, then of course it looks like you don't need to operate on it. But it's that other 30% that do go on to need surgery who often have complications of that disease process and who end up dying when they don't need to. And I think we've solved the problem of appendicitis with a very simple operation. Why should we stop doing it? Those are the kinds of changes that drive me absolutely crazy in medicine. And I think the motivation is monetary. And it's a very silly way to try to save money because you end up spending a lot more when the patient fails as an outpatient. And it's unfair to the patient. A classic example is uh, Rafa Nadal. They didn't operate on him so he could, quote, finish his tournament. He didn't finish it because he ruptured his appendix. So then he ends up having to have two surgeries. He has a year of trying to recover from an intraperitoneal abscess, and it nearly ruined his career. Had they just said, okay, this tournament is over for you, he could have had a lap appendectomy, been out of the hospital in 12 hours, and been back to his top athletic form in probably a couple of weeks. So I think that it's a very silly idea. Gotcha. So one change that's happening in education is the move from the traditional textbook to more of online open access education. Now, I'd imagine you have an opinion about this. Well, I do. There are several things in your question that make it several separate issues. The first is open access journals. I really am very opposed to that. And the reason is not because it actually provides greater access to medical information, because I don't think it does. But what it does do is it takes the cost of publication away from the publisher and puts it on the back of the author. Now, that may be fair, but it is unfairly putting it on the back of junior authors 
because the open access journals allow the senior authors to pay that access fee with their research grants, but the young authors don't have any. And therefore, this lowest paid faculty, the young faculty have the highest cost to publishing the work that will get them research grants and get them the higher salaries. So I think it's very unfair. Uh, secondly, I don't have any problem with publishing journals electronically. I think every, uh, every major journal does do that. And I think there are portions of the journal that are better published electronically right. than on paper, such as case reports, because illustrations can be done in color, which are prohibitively expensive on paper. But I still think there is a need for paper publications. And in textbooks, the search engines just aren't that good. And I think there needs to be a place where you can sit down and read a complete discussion of a topic, along with footnotes, along with the ability to switch to other chapters quickly, which is not electronic reading. So I think there's a place for both, and I think that it interests me as I talk to the people who are now editing Rosen, they still get a lot of requests for a paper textbook. But what people want in a textbook is something that the podcasts are giving them, and I have a little concern about that. So tell me about that. They want the textbook to be directive. And I have no problem with that, where there's controversy and there's not enough evidence to tell you what to do, then take a position and say on the basis of what our current experience is, we can't prove that this is the best method and we're willing to change it when there is evidence. But in the meantime, this is our approach to a problem. The problem that I have with podcasts is that Many of the residents would rather listen to a podcast than read a journal article or a textbook. And what they're getting is medical expert opinion rather than medical evidence. And I don't have any problem with, as I said, a place where the evidence is not there. But I see a lot of the podcasts taking positions that are not safe because that's the position of the podcast uh, maker. Now, I've contributed to podcasts, and I don't have any problem telling people what my style is and why I choose my style, but it's not a substitute for reading what evidence is out there and making up your own mind. So how do you think, um, can you predict, or what's your opinion on the impact that the internet, podcasts, blogs, snippets of learning is going to have from our, you know, our residents now, medical students, uh, for when they're practicing? Or, or is it going to have any? I think they're going to discover that at some point, they're going to have to do the work. You can't take Rosen and put it under your pillow and learn it. You have to read it. You can't take medicine and learn it through someone else's opinion. You're going to have to study it. You're going to have to compare your experience to what the literature says. You're going to have to discover that the populations that are studied in research projects 
are not necessarily the populations that you treat in your practice, and therefore you're going to have to modify your practice. So you're going to have to grow up and be a mature physician, just as a, we all did. Our education didn't finish when we completed our residency, but it gave us a structure from which we could improvise. It gave us a means of starting. It gave us a methodology for being safe in our evaluation of patients. And it taught us what were the responsibilities of our job, which are not necessarily to make a diagnosis. And we need to remember that. When a patient comes to the emergency department, you want to find out if he's dying. There's only five ways you die, and there's a billion ways that set you on the pathway to death. You don't really care how you got on the pathway. You do care the patient's on that pathway, and can you do something to get him off that pathway and back on the road to health? And then and only then do you start worrying about diagnosis. And I think when we focus too much on diagnosis, we turn into internists and do a bad job of emergency medicine. I'm interested to hear if you could recall, if, if, you're, if you have this, the five ways that the human body dies. Well, you can't breathe. You lack oxygen for one or more reasons. Uh, your heart can't beat or your heart has nothing with which to beat and there's metabolic failure or the brain doesn't work, the nervous system. So which of those systems is under threat? Sometimes it's more than one. And obviously one will lead to many. There is, in my mind, a very curious phenomenon that happens as you die. There has to be a messenger of death within the body. Something tells the cell that it's time to destroy itself, what we now call apoptosis. Mm. What is that something? We still don't know. But why is it that some people die and others live with injuries or diseases that would seem lethal? I've never been able to answer that question, and I think it's one of the things that makes emergency medicine continue to be exciting and a puzzle. And that is why we can save some patients, but not others. You know, I joke that there are three kinds of patients. There are those that are doctor-proof. No matter what we do to them, they'll get well. Mm -hmm. There are those who are doctor insensitive, no matter what we do for them, they're going to die. Mm -hmm. And then there are those who are doctor sensitive. And if we don't do what they need and do it quickly, they're going to turn into group two. And we're going to get blamed for group two. So we might as well take credit for group one. <laughs> right. So what, what's the greatest impact a patient has had on you? Well, I've had many throughout my career. I would say the two patients I remember the most, one was a 42-year-old man who came in complaining of shoulder pain, and he'd had an acute onset of it as he awakened that morning. When I examined him, he had a clear rotator cuff tear. I x-rayed him, couldn't find anything. 
was about to sling him and send him to Otho for follow-up when uh, I finally asked the right question, which was, how does a 42-year-old man get a rotator cuff tear in his sleep? And I went and said, uh, did you bite your cheek last night? And he said, yes. How did you know? And I said, did you wet your bed last night? And he looked terrified because he wasn't going to tell me that. Lived alone and he was very ashamed of it. And I ordered a head CT and he had a meningioma. He had a seizure, of course. And that, that case has stayed with me for many years because it is the classic definition of emergency medicine and why diagnosis isn't enough. You have to understand that part of your job is why did the patient develop this disease today? What's different about the patient? And that's what I have to intervene in. The second case was a young boy who was 15 years old who was riding with his father in a car that was struck by a, a drunk driver. And uh, I had to take care of this boy at a time when my younger son was exactly his age. And this kid looked like a clone of my son. And it was emotionally very difficult for me to take care of this boy because it was like taking care of my own boy. And right. of course I had to do things to him that were painful and unpleasant. He did have a positive peritoneal lavage, which is what we were doing at that time. Right. And uh, he went off to the OR and did quite well. But I remember when my wife picked me up after my shift, I burst into tears because it was so hard to take care of right. somebody who was like my own son. And I think that's uh, made me realize that there are emotional impacts upon us in emergency medicine that we're often not aware of. And yet we have to continue to perform despite those emotional impacts. The one area that I think we have to remember and improve upon in emergency medicine is making people feel better. We focus on the critical patient. Those are easy. You plunge a tube down every orifice and you admit them somewhere. But it's the patient who's going to go home that's the difficult patient. We have figured out that it's safe for them to go. We have figured out what their acute problem is. And now we have to tell them how we are going to make them feel better. How we're going to leave them glad that they had us as a doctor and glad that they came to the emergency department. And we're very bad at that. We're very good at telling them, you know, it's not your gallbladder. You know, you don't have a PE. You don't have cancer. Mm -hmm. Well, the patient didn't think he did in the first place. He didn't know what he had. That's why he came to the emergency department. Mm -hmm. Well, what do I have mm -hmm. and how do I get over it? That's what they need to hear from us. And we need to spend a little more time doing that and thinking about that as part of emergency medicine. What is the, you know, in your experiences, what's been the greatest reward for interacting with patients, for treating patients? for you? Personal reward. Lewis Thomas said that a good doctor has the gift of affection. I can't 
put it any better than that. I love taking care of patients because I always, from the time I can remember as a little boy, wanted to know what to do to make people feel better when they had an acute need to feel better. And I think it's that satisfaction, the recognition that now I know the answer to a lot of those questions, not all because you never can, but a lot of those questions. And in fact, I can do the very thing that I find fulfilling, which is to take someone who's anxious and worried and feeling bad and help them to feel better. That's what a doctor's all about, and that's what I wanted to be, and that's what I became. Are there any lessons that you learned from your father that you still, uh, that you think about one or two or three lessons? Well, he was really good at making people feel better. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was spending a summer in his office when I was a medical student. And he had this machine that made a lot of noise and it sprayed and it sucked. And he he used to spray sore throats with some really nice tasting stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, being the smart ass medical student said, I read a paper that said it doesn't help sore throats to spray them topically. And he looked at me and he says, you know that and I know that, but the patient feels better. And if the patient feels better, then he pays my bill and I pay your tuition, <laughs> which he didn't do, by the way. <laughs> and and But that was the lesson that has always stuck with me. And he was really good at that. And it's not that he was being dishonest. It's that he was really concerned that patients would feel better when they left his office. And he was... He had a consultation room. Every patient, no matter how trivial the problem, had to sit with him in that room before he went home to answer any questions, to get the instructions, and to leave feeling that this doctor had really taken the time to put some personal interest into him. And you can do that in the emergency department without a consultation room. You just have to make yourself do it. Any other lessons that you could think of? I think intellectual honesty, there's no substitute for recognizing what you don't know. And it's okay to share that with patients. I don't know your diagnosis. I can't know it because this isn't the place to find it out. I do know what is happening today. And I do know what we're doing to make you feel better but there are many things that I can't do here in the emergency department, and I'm going to share some of them with you. I think that the intellectual honesty to say, I need help, and not try to do everything by myself. I think the intellectual honesty to say, it's time for me to stop practicing. It's time for me to cut back from my practice because physically I've aged and I can't do it anymore. The honesty to say, I'm sick today and I have to do something that isn't part of my culture, which is to get a substitute for myself because I'm really not in the right condition to take care of patients. And the honesty to recognize that I have to prepare myself to go to work, that I can't go to work tired, I can't go to work 
with too little sleep. I can't go to work after having a major quarrel with my spouse and do a good job. That I have to take care of the practice as well as of myself. So see if you can answer this one. What is something about you that most people don't know? I don't know how to answer that question. I would guess that they probably don't know how much I read. Science, fiction, nonfiction? Everything. But I read a lot of science. I probably read between six and ten papers a day in large measure because it's part of my editing responsibilities. But in large measure, it's because that's the only way I feel comfortable that I know what I need to know in medicine. I like to read non-medicine because it gives me a picture of my culture and what people think about their society, which changes over time. It gives me a chance to find out about different generations of people in my society and what are their concerns and what are their fantasies. And finally, it gives me pleasure. I uh, have always been an avid reader. And even in medical school, I probably read a novel every two or three days. Probably should have been reading a little more medicine, but uh, <laughs> it was too boring. So can you give us one, two, three of the most influential books that you've read? Maybe that have influenced, let's say, maybe you know something that's influenced your personal life, something that's influenced your professional life. Well, the novel that I liked the best was The Red and the Black by Stendhal. And I wish I'd read it when I was uh, 15 because it's sort of a young man growing up and how the world looks inside of his mind and how he drives himself to do what he thinks he ought to be doing as opposed to what he really wants to be doing. And that he is quite old before he discovers that that's really what makes a man not to do what everybody thinks makes a man, right. but to do what you ought to be doing as a man, not what you ought to be doing because of what the people around you say. Right. And I think that uh, Stendhal did that in such an interesting fashion because he wrote the novel through the eyes of his characters. And there is a storyline that's what's happening to the characters. And then there's a storyline in the minds of the characters that's totally different. Their vision of what's going on in that external storyline. It's brilliant. I don't know any other book that does that. And he does it better than I would have thought it was possible to do. So that's one of my favorite novels. And uh, anybody who wants a good read should read that one. Yeah, we'll put that uh, with the show notes. Uh, we'll put the title and, and a link to it on Amazon. The um, medical book that had a profound effect on me was called Horse and Buggy Doctor. And I read that as a kid. And... It was a story of a GP and how he got to be competent in medicine. He went to Austria to study because that's what doctors did in those days. But what I got out of that book was not so much 
how he got to be a doctor or what he did as a doctor, but there's one chapter where he taught himself how to do tonsillectomies by practicing on cadavers. And that stood out in my mind that you have to teach yourself how to be competent. And I remember doing the same thing when I was a surgical resident. It wasn't tonsillectomies, but it, we had a month on pathology where I did autopsies. And I was less interested in the autopsy than I was in practicing the operations that I was going to be doing on people. And it, it again, it, it was a very important book for me because it sort of was my first glimpse of the real world of medicine as opposed to the fantasy world that I read in some of the other novels about physician like the Frank Slaughter novels. I think Lewis Thomas's book, The Youngest Science, had a big effect upon me too yep. because uh, he, he talked about what a doctor is and not very many people do that. And I love that aphorism, a good doctor has the gift of affection. I couldn't say it any better. He wrote The Lives of Cells also, I think. Was that him? Yeah. He did. And uh, did he write The Snail and the Medusa, something like that? I think he did. I think he did. Yeah, What if he was... Uh... Oh, no, no, that was Gould, the biologist, at uh, paleontologist at Harvard. So what are you, are you reading uh, anything now, anything on your nightstand, um, anything recently that you've read? Well, I read about 10 books at the same time. <laughs> so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of books on my nightstand. Have you always done that? Have you read multiple books at a time? Or Yeah, I've always done that. My granddaughter put me onto a book that's a new cult novel. What's it called? An Infinite Jest. Okay. It's about a... a a kid who's going to school in a tennis camp. And I guess the author had, was a ranked junior tennis player, although he, he later became a professor of literature and writing. And I think it's a cult novel because he uh, ended up committing suicide. The novel is sort of in part about that character and in part about characters who are addicted to alcohol and drugs and who are depressed. It's sort of like a combination of Tom Robbins, Neil Stevenson, and uh, O'Toole, the guy who mm -hmm. wrote other cult novel called uh, A Conspiracy of Dunces, mm -hmm. who also committed suicide. <laughs> I can't say that I like or dislike the novel. It's extraordinarily long. Right. It has a zillion footnotes, and I'm only about halfway through it. But it is well-written. Although I think it could have withstood uh, savage editing. It didn't need to be quite that long. Many of the footnotes are just sort of repetitions of the rant. Right. The footnote is based on, but it does give you a picture of what people are feeling inside themselves as they experience various things in their lives. And having spent, a lot of my life taking care of alcoholics and drug addicts and depressed people, I find it very accurate. So I think it's uh, an interesting book. I like to read uh, history and uh, I just read a series, uh, a kind of trilogy uh, about Cicero and uh, the historical novels of ancient Rome, which 
I think were pretty accurate from what I've learned about that time. Right. See what else I'm reading. I like to read no-brainers because then I don't have to put out a lot of brain energy. <laughs> you know, spy novels, mystery novels. Have you thought about writing uh, other than uh, a textbook? Have you ever thought about writing a nonfiction book or a fiction book? Well, I have, but I um, I chose not to earlier because I have a son who's a writer, and I don't compete with the professional careers of my sons. Right. I learned that when I, my oldest son, who was in law school, and uh, we were talking about constitutional law, which I've always been interested in, and I was discussing it with him because I'd read a couple of books on it. And my wife said, why don't you go to law school? And he got very angry. Mm. He said, why does he need to do that? He has a profession. And I realized he wanted to be the lawyer in the family. And I quickly said, why do I want to go to law school? I'm a doctor. And I, and I realized uh, that it's hard on your children when you compete with them at places where they're trying to be individuals. Right. And I realized that I'm probably not the easiest person to be a son of. Right. So, no, I haven't wanted to write. And now I'm old enough to the point where I'm not sure I want to undertake the work of writing. Yeah. And I still like writing on medicine. I like writing editorials. I still write papers now and then, and I still do a lot of editing. So that takes care of my literary itch. Do you ever gift books to people? I do, all the time. And if so, what are maybe the uh, top one, two, or three books that you have gifted over your life? Well, I don't do the same books. I uh -huh. give books topically to people on a subject that we've been either arguing about or discussing <laughs> right. or that I'm currently interested in. I give books to people that I've enjoyed that I hope they will enjoy. I give gifts. I give books to people uh, on topics they've asked me about. I know some book that uh, will meet their need. So I can't say I've given the same book that often. Do you have one that comes to mind, one or two, that is kind of your go-to? Well, when people ask for a good read, I give them the red and the black. Mm -hmm. I'm going to pick that up. When you think of a successful person, who comes to mind? Well, I define success as being fulfilled, not being happy. Right. I think happiness is physiological. Mm -hmm. you know, it's having a good bowel movement. <laughs> and it's not something you really control. But I think fulfillment comes from something that you had to do in order to make it work. And my nephew, Rich Wolf, is a successful man. And I'm very impressed with the way he runs his department and with what he's done in his life. You know, I have a circle of academic companions and friends, and I'm very impressed with how smart they are and how well put together they are. Guys like Dave Brown at Mass General and uh, uh, Sam Kime here in Arizona and Ted Chan in San Diego. And I've had the, the pleasure of working with some of them as residents, 
the pleasure of knowing some of them for years and sharing my vision of the world through my special kind of academic needs with them. But all of them have one thing in common, and that is they are intellectually honest and they work hard enough to have accomplishments that fulfills them. And I think that's my definition of success. Do you still set goals? Did you set goals for yourself as a early junior physician, as a mid-career physician? I think sort of globally I did. I, you know, I set out to be a doctor. That was a goal that didn't come easily. I didn't get into medical school the first year I applied. Right. But I managed to succeed. And I think that that was uh, probably the goal that was most important to me. Had I not become a physician, I think I would have considered myself a failure. But since I did, I, I, I don't know for sure. Maybe I would have grown up. I obviously set a goal of training as a surgeon. I didn't know I was changing specialties when I moved to Chicago, but I set my goal to solve the problems of the emergency department. And I think those are the kinds of goals that I've set, problem solving. And uh, I think that at some point in my life, I realized that there were things I wasn't going to get around to and that it was okay. Mm -hmm. I think for that, I probably was a kind of driven person. Mm -hmm. But and, and I don't know what changed. I don't know why I stopped feeling that. Maybe it was the recognition that I was older and that there were things that I just simply couldn't do. And therefore, it was time to stop worrying. Could you tell us some of those things that you think that you may never get to do? Well, some of them are travel. I always wanted to go to China. I'm never going to do that. I always wanted to do some basic science research, but I never got around to it. And that may well be because I don't have any talent for it. <laughs> and I was fooling myself. I always wanted to study more mathematics. I did for a while as a hobby, but uh, again, I never got around to making a, a formal study of it. Is there anything that people don't ask you that you wish they did? Oh, I think that what I wish for people is that they would stop iconizing me. Mm -hmm. They have an image of what I must be because that's what they think I am. And I'm probably nowhere near what they uh, are thinking. So I suppose the answer to your question is, I wish they would accept me as a simple person as opposed to uh, an important person, which I'm not. One of the medical students who was interviewing for residency asked me what I wanted to be remembered for and was quite shocked when I said my sense of humor. <laughs> I really meant it. Yeah, right, yeah. Some people don't know. <laughs> no. And I think people are often surprised by yeah. my sense of humor. Yeah. Do you believe people have a specific calling? I think people have certain talents, and if they're lucky, they find a way to express those talents. I was unusual because none of the members of my family ever felt it. But I grew up knowing I w wanted to be a doctor, and that was very helpful. 
to me. I don't know that it helps other people to grow up thinking that they want to be an ex and then becoming that. Although it's interesting how many of the sons of people in certain fields take on those fields. And I think that we are products of our early ex socializations and, and trainings. But um, I don't know that there are such things as natural doctors, natural lawyers, natural architects. I do believe that people have different talents in medicine. Not everybody is capable of being an emergency physician. I think it requires somebody who's not afraid to make decisions and who's not afraid to act. And there are physicians who need more time to make a decision, who need more information, who don't mind steering a, a, a truck but are afraid to get it moving. And they don't belong in emergency medicine. I do believe that there are physicians who are not very good with people, and they probably don't belong in emergency medicine either. Right. So I think we have to find out where our talents lie and then uh, try to utilize them profitably in a, in a field that calls for their use. In both your personal and professional life, what are you, is there one thing, two things that you're most proud of? You've, you've expressed a lot, healing patients, your sense of humor. What are you most proud of, both professionally and personally? I think of the, the people that I've helped develop, mm -hmm. and that's both professional and personal. I am, of course, proud of my efforts to produce literature, but I think I'm most proud of my uh, graduates. And in my personal life, I'm most proud of the fact that I will have been married for 57 years this, uh, wow. this May. And, uh, and that I still find my wife to be my best friend and someone who I can make laugh and someone who I'm very happy to be around, someone who I'm friends with and who I need to see every day. I'm happy that I didn't make enemies out of my children the way my father did. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy that uh, I have a chance to see my grandchildren grow and develop. Well, for example, my oldest grandson is in college and he often sends me his papers to edit, which I get a big kick out of. He's actually a very good writer. That's great. So some people may say one of the, your greatest achievements is being married for 57 years. I'm at 10 years and have struggled at times and had to work much harder at maintaining a strong relationship than I had ever thought. But in the end, the investment is certainly well worth it. How are you able to maintain a marriage for almost 57 years? How do you keep it going? How do you maintain that? What advice would you have? Well, it's rather similar to how you sustain yourself professionally. Number one, you hit the nail on the head. It's something you cannot take for granted. Right. I have to work at it. Number two, you have to invest the energy to keep it from becoming chaotic. And by that, I mean, 
I look back on my early years of marriage and I was a selfish prick. <laughs> I was worried about being a competent physician. Right. I didn't have time for my wife and children. And um, I think that that's one of the things I regret the most because I realized that there were ways to do both and that I would have been better at what I most wanted to be by taking the time for my wife and children. Now, how do you do that? Well, one way is with manners. I couldn't be bothered to call home that I was going to be late because something had come up because my wife knew I was doing something important and I didn't have to tell her. But I discovered over time that taking a minute to make a phone call made an enormous difference to her. It's not that she wasn't willing to let me do the things I needed to do, but then she could go on with her life knowing where I was instead of waiting around wondering uh, what was happening. I think that it took me about 25 years to learn how to apologize when I didn't feel I was wrong. And I would suggest that as an important tactic for two reasons. It stops the vicious cycle of anger. You did something to me. I'm not going to apologize. You need to apologize to me. So I'm going to do something that in my anger that will get even. Instead of which, if you apologize, when you know you're not wrong, it opens the conversation on a level of what is it that bothered you? And I can tell you what it is that bothers me. And every time I've done it, within 48 hours, my wife has, in fact, told me that she too wanted to apologize. Right. So it really is a way of smoothing over something that could become a source of pain between you. And you don't need that. Number three, you got to tell people that you care. You can't take them for granted. You got to tell your children that they're great kids. Yeah, you got to tell them why you're mad at them. You got to tell them why you're proud of them. And similarly with a wife, you got to tell her you love her. It's not enough to do it. it. It has to be expressed. And there's nothing wrong with doing it with a surprise now and then. You know, give her a, an orchid or saying, we're going out to dinner tonight because you've been working too hard. It's the little things that make her realize that you really do have deep feelings for her. And it helps you to preserve the relationship that has to be more than sexual. If there isn't a friendship between you, you can't share a life together. Yeah, that's something that probably took five years into my marriage to really grasp, you know, we end up taking for granted the people who are closest to us and who we uh, supposedly love the most. Um, and I think going into medicine where the demands of both time and energy and focus are so great that it was about five to seven years into that where I recognized that and was able to make that change also. Yes, I think that's very important. And also to realize that things aren't that critical. 
that you don't have to finish that paper today. I was particularly bad at that. I always mm -hmm. uh, was rushed to do more things for my career, but your career will flourish if you publish that paper tomorrow as opposed to today. Now, I don't mean put it off till next year, but I mean, take the night off and go out to dinner. You're not going to destroy your career and you're going to help your marriage. And I think that uh, you're going to help yourself too, because you're going to get something back from that friendship that you desperately need. And I think that uh, you have to understand that you grow together, that mm -hmm. different things happen over time. And you have to make sure that they are happening simultaneously. Just because you've been married 20 years doesn't mean that you can't grow apart from your wife and, right. uh, and then one day discover that you're unhappy with uh, being in that situation. I think you have to guard against uh, the kind of selfish curiosity that most men possess. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I'm entitled to something new right. or something different. Well, no, you're not. And, right. and you don't really need it anyway. But we think we do. And I think that part of that is to keep your wife as something you really care about. That that's what's fresh and new. And see her in a different light. Take her to a, a new place. Discover things together on a trip somewhere that that's your private property, that little restaurant that you fell into. And if you don't keep working at it, I can assure you, your marriage will crumble and fail. Yeah. Do you have any favorite quotations or anything that you keep in the back of your mind or you look at or you read over and over again that you could recite now? Or do you have to reference something? I don't use quotes in that respect. My mm -hmm. quotes are mostly sarcastic humor. <laughs> I love Winston Churchill, for example. And uh, his quick wit is something I have a great envy for. Right. I, uh, I think one of my favorite quips was uh, Richard Burton, who was having a fight with some earl who told him that you are a, a scoundrel and will die either of syphilis or by being hung. <laughs> and Burton said, probably true, depending upon whether I embrace your wife or your more. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. <laughs> And I think that uh, the more meaningful quotes, uh, I find uh, hard to be apt in more than a single situation. You know, I, I, I probably spout them from time to time from the things I've read, such as when it comes to stupidity, even the gods weep. Right. right. But mostly my uh, quotations are either stolen quips from people that uh, I like the sarcasm of or the humor of gotcha i know we're uh coming to an end soon i know you have some meetings uh, shortly i wanted to ask you when you were early in your training throughout your career did you ever have any morning rituals you know did you ever have a specific time you'd wake up in the morning things you would do before you'd get to work or anything like that well not really because i hate getting up in the morning mm -hmm. yeah of course, as an emergency physician, I spent most of my life doing it. So my morning ritual was, how the hell do I wake up? And I think uh, probably the closest I come to a ritual is uh, shaving with a, with a brush and a razor. Mm -hmm. Because 
it takes a little time and it kind of gets me a chance to wake up a little bit. Mm. When would you do most of your writing? I'm a late night person. I do my writing mostly in the evening and at night. So before we wrap up, you know, we have a lot of great pearls in the conversation and and I'm not sure we really need anything else. But is there anything that you would leave this conversation with to tell maybe a, a medical student today, a resident, junior, faculty member that you wish someone would have told you? Yeah, I think that you have to work at preserving your ideals in your profession, just as you work at preserving your love for your wife. I've never met a medical student candidate or a resident candidate who didn't have ideals, who didn't lose them through medical school or five years later. And I think part of that is pseudo-sophistication. Part of that is because you didn't try to keep them. Why did you become a doctor? Why did you become an emergency physician? What did you expect to get back from it? And I believe that those of us who think we can be perfectly altruistic are naive. Either that or dedicated Christian. Which I'm, <laughs> what selfishly did you expect to get back from being an emergency physician? Right. And why are you no longer getting it? Are you taking care of the wrong kinds of patients? Because there are different practices in emergency medicine. Are you in the wrong group? You don't like your partners and their attitudes towards money or medical care. Right. Are you in the wrong kind of practice because you really don't like academics? You don't want the pressure of producing academic product. You don't need to. Right. Go practice in the community. Do something different. And I think you have to ask what it is that fulfills you, why it's no longer fulfilling you, and what you have to do differently in order to get that back. It may mean a change of specialty. It may mean a change of city, or it may mean a change of the kind of practice you do. It will certainly mean loss of money because you can't make change without a cost. But only you can make that change, and you've got to do it because the second law of thermodynamics is there. And when you can no longer come up with the energy necessary to preserve the order of your system, then it's time to move to a different closed system. And I think you just got to accept that. But you got to work at it. And I think the people who hate what they're doing but won't change it are the ones who claim they're burned out. And they're just feeling sorry for themselves. Maybe there's a good reason for they're not getting back what the kind of recognition and reward that they thought they were going to get. Maybe they're not earning the income that they thought they needed. Whatever is lacking, only you can change it. And I don't believe in burnout. I just think that what you've got to do is say, what am I missing? What do I need to do differently? Is it them or is it me? Many of the moves that I've made, I never thought I would make like leaving Denver to go to San Diego the first time. But it was time, and it wasn't easy, and I resented having to do it, but it turned out to be a very good move in, the, in both the short and the long term. 
I took a long walk on the beach and I said, what do I owe them? Am I not getting it? Is it them or is it me? It's them. I'm leaving. And it was triggered by my wife saying to me one day, why are you always so angry when you come home from work? And I started ranting and she said, that's exactly what I mean. And she was right, of course. Why do I need a job that makes me angry? And what do I need to change so that I won't get angry? Is it me? I'm just turning into a crusty old man who can't get his way and therefore loses his temper? Or is it because the things that I'm trying to accomplish are not any longer possible in this environment? Turned out to be the latter, so I moved to San Diego. So that's what I'd leave you with. Preserve your ideals. Don't let the people around you poke fun at them. And look for where you get your fulfillment and make sure that it's still there and go after it if it's not. That's exceptional. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rosen. Thanks for the uh, opportunity to talk with you. I wish it would happen more often. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And this kind of podcast, I don't mind. It's when I pontificate and tell people how to practice medicine without any reference to evidence that those are the podcasts I hate. Hopefully we did some justice with this one, and uh, I, I think it came out really well. So thank you, and I will, uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. Hey guys, this is Adam. Thanks again for listening. If you liked this episode, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast and leave a review. Every positive review helps. Also, remember to subscribe to the podcast so you automatically get episodes downloaded to your podcast library. Please send any questions or feedback to the email conversations at roshreview.com. If there's someone you have in mind who you'd like for me to have a conversation with, please let me know. Don't forget to check out the Rosh blog at roshreview.com backslash blog for more excellent content. And if you are a student, a PA, nurse practitioner, or doctor who is in a training program or residency or has an upcoming exam, take a look at roshreview.com and sign up for a free trial. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you at the next episode. So long.